This sermon was preached by Peter Nakotra, head pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Woodhaven, Queens. Grace Baptist was planted in 2001 and is seeking to reach South Queens and North Brooklyn with the gospel. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.gbcny.org. Please feel free to distribute the sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Matthew 26, the disciples really hit with the the most troubling two days of their entire lives. Uh, Jesus tells them on Tuesday, he says in two days, uh, at the time of the Passover, that he will be delivered up and he will be crucified. Then Then he sends out Peter and John on this undercover mission to prepare the Passover meal for them, which I'm sure confuses the disciples. Uh, then during the Passover, he drops an absolute bombshell on them by assuring them that one of the twelve, one of his close associates, would actually betray him, which sends a shockwave through the eleven uh, and, and causes a series of, Lord is it I, Lord is it I, Lord is it I. Then he takes the bread, he breaks it, he tells them to eat of it because he says it represents his body, and then he takes the wine, he tells them to drink of it because it represents his blood, meaning... I am going to give up my life and I am going to be killed. But I want you always to remember what I am doing and why I am going to die and that it is for the remission of sins. And in the midst of this memorial, he says that the the covenant, that the covenant which they have grown up with, that they have known for all of their lives and for many generations of their relatives have grown up with, he says, is done away with. It's done away with. It's obsolete. And I am instituting a new covenant I am instituting a better covenant and the basis for that better covenant is my life and is my death and my resurrection. So we are now done with Passovers. We are now done with ceremonies. We are now done with days and Sabbaths and feasts. And the whole sacrificial system has fulfilled its purpose. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. And then he leaves them with an encouragement which at the time must have confused him, I would believe, when he says, I will not drink the fruit of this vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In other words, he's saying, after I'm resurrected, I'm going back to my Father, but I will come back again. And when I come back again, you will see me in glory. And you will be with me in glory. Well, now in verses 31 to 35, the 11 apostles, minus Judas, because Judas has already gone out to betray Jesus to the, to the chief priests. Uh, 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 they again become terribly troubled because Jesus tells them that all of them that very night will fear for their very lives and they will abandon him that very night. And I want to set the context of these verses as they're walking out. Uh, And and then we're going to look at them. They've just finished the Passover meal. They have just drunk drank the fourth cup. And then we read in verse 30, uh, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And remember, I said last week that they sang six psalms at the Passover. Psalm 113, 14, 15, all the way to 18, which was called the Halal. And when they finish singing the last psalm, they get up, they leave the upper room in Jerusalem, and they cross over the Brook Kidron, which was said at that time uh, to have been basically read, been read, uh, from the drain off of all the bloody sacrifices of all the lambs that were killed for the Passover sacrifices. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus said that as many as 250,000 lambs were slain at the temple during the Passover, making it basically a bloodbath. And the blood would run off and into the brook Kidron and flow out. And it must have been a very vivid reminder to the apostles as they were crossing over the Brook Hidron, the cost of the deliverance of God's people. Well, they cross over the brook and make their way to the Mount of Olives. And as they're on their way up, Jesus gives them this stark warning and prophecy of their offense of him and then they're scattering away from him. And with that, I'd like to look at these verses 31 to 35 using a three-point outline. And if you have a bulletin, the outline will be in back of that bulletin. All will stumble. Peter will never stumble. And thirdly, how Peter will stumble. So let's look at all will stumble. Verses 31 to 32, and I'll read it again. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. 
But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Right? Jesus has the eleven apostles with him. And he says, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. Now, he's already told them that one of them would betray him. He's already told them that. But now he says that all of you will abandon me. You'll all abandon me. And, and this is the last thing that they thought that they would ever hear. And it probably really riveted them. And the timing of it, this very night, was probably unbelievable to them. Like, how could this be? Now, the word stumble in Greek is an interesting word. It comes, it is the word called, in Greek, it's called scandalizo. And it comes from the word, the English word, to scandalize. And it means, in Greek, to offend, to put a stumbling block in the way of, to entrap. And Jesus says, all of you guys, all 11 of you are going to be trapped. Or you're going to be tripped up or offended because of me this night. And now, why this is shocking to the apostles is because these 11 guys, they really love him. They really do love him. They have forsaken everything to follow him. And they believed that he was the Messiah. They believed he was the Son of God. Even if they didn't really understand what all of that entailed. And they didn't at this point. But they still believed him. So no way could they ever see themselves being offended by Jesus. Or stumbling because of him. Or forsaking him. But they did indeed stumble. And, and we look in chapter 26, verse 56, we read, Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Now what they stumbled over was being associated with Jesus. And that is because they feared for their lives. When the soldiers come with clubs and swords to arrest Jesus, the apostles feared that they would be arrested too, since they were with Jesus. You see, they feared association with an arrested Jesus would bring about the wrath of the, uh, of the Roman soldiers and the wrath of the Jewish leaders upon them. And so, they fled to save their own skin. I mean, is it not true that people do not want to be associated with criminals or evildoers or troublemakers? If you're hanging around a member of a notorious crime family or maybe a Ku Klux Klan member, what do you think people are going to think about you? What do you think? They're going to think that you're either one of them or that you'll somehow sympathize with them. I remember back, back in 2001, the day I got let go from the, the job I had at an ad agency was in October of 2001. And I remember that day I got let go. And I remember when I came down from, 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 from leaving the, um, um, the woman's office who was the, uh, the director of whatever she was who let me go. And, and I saw people that I had worked with for years six, seven, eight years I worked with some of these people and here's the thing they wouldn't talk to me they wouldn't come around me they didn't want to look at me and, and I thought about that like why am I all of a sudden now like a pariah why do I have a stench before them and it's because they were afraid they were afraid if they associated with me anymore or got close to me that they might get it too in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul commended Anisiphorus because he was not ashamed to be associated with Paul when Paul was in prison. He said this, that he, talking Anisiphorus, that he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. Listen, seeking out a guy in prison could mean that you, have a, you, you are associated with that guy. Maybe you're doing what he's doing. And maybe you deserve to be in prison too. He said in 2 Timothy 4, and his, again, his last letter, he said to Timothy, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Everyone deserted him. Right? May it not be charged against him. They were afraid. They were afraid to go and visit a prisoner. They were afraid that they would become a prisoner too. So to associate with a prisoner, you run the risk of becoming one yourself. Well, the Jewish authorities, they hate Jesus. And they wanted him dead, and they wanted him dead for some time now. And they wield a lot of power. And once they arrest Jesus, the apostles are struck with fear. And they go into a self-survival mode, which means they scatter. And the reason it has gotten to this point, that they are riveted with such fear, is because they cannot grasp at this point the suffering Messiah. No Jew can grasp at this point the suffering Messiah. Even though Jesus has talked much about him being put to death and his being delivered up to crucifixion and all kinds of, of, all kinds of beatings and, 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 and mockings and whatnot, 
It doesn't make sense to his disciples. It seems like a terrible mistake that the Messiah would die and suffer. It seems like a, material, a terrible mistake. Right? And like so many of us, right, they may have been thinking that I'm just not going to deal with it because he keeps talking about it, but they don't deal with it. And if I don't deal with it, it'll go away. Right? You don't deal with a problem. You just sort of bury your head on it. It goes away. But it doesn't. And it doesn't for Jesus and it doesn't for them because Jesus is arrested and they all fled. And everything he told them up to that point, it goes out the window at that point. Right? Everything. Uh, and their confession of who he was, that goes out the window right now. Never mind. Never mind that they are some of his closest friends on earth and they have vowed to love him and to be, to, be, to be aligned with him and to be faithful to him. It all goes out the window because they fear for their lives. So they don't want to be associated with Jesus. No, in fact, they want to be disassociated with Jesus and from Jesus. And I'm telling you, they are not delighting in him anymore. Never mind that he taught like no man who ever taught before with authority from God. Never mind that they saw countless, countless, countless evidences of who he was by his miracles and that he himself gave them the authority and power to do miracles. And never mind that, that just a few months before they witnessed Lazarus being raised out of the tomb when he was dead for four days and they had just had a meal with Lazarus that week. So they're not delighting in Jesus. They're not glorying in him. In fact, they're running away from him to save their own necks. And as the saying goes, if you can't take the heat, you get out of the kitchen. Well, they got out. You see, they don't have faith that Jesus can deliver them because they don't have faith that he's in control of anything at this point. Right now, they see him as a victim. And, and, and they think they will be victimized too if they hang out with a victim. And if he can't help himself, how is he going to be able to help them? So in reality, they're not ready to suffer for his sake. They will be. And actually, not so long from now, they will be, but at this point, they are not ready to suffer for his sake. What we see in the book of Acts, chapter 5, only months after this, right? They, they are arrested and beaten by the Jewish authorities for preaching the gospel, right? Right on the get-go. And here's what we read in chapter 5, verse 41. So they, the, the apostles, departed from the presence of the council, that's the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They went from fleeing away from him in fear for their very own lives to thanking God, counting me worthy to suffer for him. But for now, before the cross, right, at the night of Jesus' arrest, they are not fully trusting in him. They don't yet see God's salvation plan. They don't yet understand the wisdom of God's salvation plan. They don't understand the cross. And they don't understand the necessity for Christ suffering on the cross at the hands of godless men. They don't get that yet. And they won't get that really until Pentecost and God sends the Holy Spirit. So then the apostles were offended because of Jesus. But we really shouldn't be too hard on them. Oh, those apostles, I can't believe they did that. Well, they did do that. But you and I do it too. You understand that. We do it at times. Because at times, you and I are offended by him as well. Right? Have we not been in situations where we would not speak up for Jesus when we should have? Have we not been in those situations? Have there not been times where we have been silent about our faith rather than incur the wrath or maybe the ridicule of those around us? Have we not been guilty of saying nothing or just smiling or looking the other way? When those around us are dragging Jesus' name through the mud and using it as a curse word? Or maybe when some topic like homosexuality or lesbianism or same-sex marriage or gender-neutral bathrooms or whatever we're dealing with today comes up and for fear of seeming maybe intolerant or hateful or archaic, we walk away rather than share God's word on it? And in essence, by doing so, really what we're doing and what we're conveying is that we're okay with whatever they say. See, when you say nothing, it's kind of like you agree with the guys who are saying something. The 
point is, there have been times that we have not wanted to speak up for Jesus. That we have not wanted to be associated with Him. Because we know what people will think of us. We know it. God squad, crazy, fanatic. You know, just name a few. Right? We know what they're going to think of us. And we know that it could even cost us something. So, so, so we don't want the heat that comes from siding with Jesus. We don't want to suffer... We don't want to suffer reproach for his sake. But remember what Jesus said. Remember what he said in Matthew eleven six. Blessed, happy, really, really happy in his inner man is the, the one who is not offended because of me. And listen, Jesus is an offense to the world. Everything he said and commands rubs the world the wrong way. It just does. Go out now on any street and just read one of the Gospels. Well, just read Romans chapter 3. Read Romans chapter 1. Read anything in the Gospels. Read anything in the Scriptures. And people get upset by it. Because it's saying things that goes against the grain. He's an offense to this world. And here's the thing. He's an offense because the light comes into the world and the light exposes the darkness. And the darkness doesn't like being exposed by the light. Because darkness loves darkness. Evil loves evil. Sin loves sin. And Jesus calls men out as sinners. And he calls men to repentance. And he says that they can only find forgiveness in life through him. And that's not popular. People don't like this very narrow, very, very short possibility of ever gaining eternal life through Jesus. I don't want that because that means I've got to surrender to that. I don't want to surrender to anybody. And by nature, we kick against that. Right? We're, and by nature, we want what we want because we love what we love. And that basically is self. And Jesus is saying they're not popular. And they expose the vileness of men's hearts. And men don't like it. And I don't like it either. And, and although we Christians at times struggle and have not stepped up for Christ, it is not our norm to be offended by Him. And when we are, and we do at times, we repent. Have you not been just broken in your own soul when, when you just cowered before people? And I've done it, and I've done it so many times, it, it, I hate it. When I don't say something, when the, when the door is open and I just do nothing. Because I know there's going to be friction. And I know there's going to, it's, they're going to come back at me. I know it. And so to say nothing, it's easier. But then you, it works on your heart and you're like, oh, I'm such a coward. I wouldn't confess the very one who came to me, who confessed me. But if one professes Christ as their Lord and yet they will never stand up. If you're in the category where you never say anything to anybody because you don't want to get that, you don't ever want anyone to have any trouble with you, then they need to know something. You need to hear what Jesus said about that in Luke chapter 9, verse 26. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, not only him, the person, but his words, the Bible. If you are ashamed of me or my words, of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and his fathers and, his, and of the holy angels. So in other words, this, if you won't speak up for me now, if you won't stand up for me now, then you have no right to think on the last day I'll stand up for you. Because on that day, I'm not going to say, oh, put him on the right hand, he's one of my sheep. I'm gonna, I don't know that guy. Put him on the left. That's a goat. And that goes to judgment. You see, what he's saying is he knows. If we won't stand up for him, if it's our norm not to stand up for him, I'm not saying we don't cower at times in sin. We do. But the norm is that we stand up. And the norm for the unbelievers, they don't stand up. No matter what we claim, if you will not stand up ever... Well, then you have, no, you have no right thinking he'll stand up for you on the last day. Well, Jesus says that they will all be made to stumble because of him. And then he backs it up. And he backs it up with Scripture, which adds extreme weight to his prediction. He says, it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And it is written, goes back to Zechariah 13, verse 7, which Javier read. Uh, and the shepherd here refers to the Messiah, who is Jesus. And the one who will do the striking of the shepherd, that's God the Father. So the Father would kill the Son on behalf of 
rebellious sinners. That's what he's saying. Right? And Isaiah 53 clearly says it again. Verses 4 and 10. Surely, surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, beaten down and killed, and afflicted. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. Isaiah 53 says, God did it. God did it. And the reason God must smite him or bruise him or put him to grief is because he's a just God. People have a problem with that. See, people have a problem with why does Jesus need to be slaughtered at the cross? Why is God doing that? What kind of religion is this anyway? But they don't understand God. And they don't understand sin. Right? But he must punish sin. Because sin is a breaking of his law. And, and he's holy. And his law is holy. And God would be unholy and unjust to just let things go. Now on the surface, Zechariah 13 seems to be talking about false prophets who were born in Israel, whom God would strike down. But Jesus takes the prophecy and applies it to himself. He says that the shepherd who will be struck down is him. He says, I'm the shepherd. And the apostles need to understand this, that the cross is God's idea. The cross is God's idea, and he has ordained it. Uh, because it is the only way that, that is the only way his justice can be met, and at the same time, he can justify sinners. Now, I'm going to say it again, because that's an equation. If you can put it in your head and you grasp it, you understand substitution. You understand the atonement then. Right? You understand why the cross. It is the only way that his justice can be met. We are criminals before the, before the God of heaven because of our sin. And there's a payment for the crime. Right? There's a punishment for the crime. And he, he's a just judge. It is the only way that his justice can be met and at the same time, at the same time, justify, make not guilty, sinners. That's the cross. Because he puts, he puts the, the crime and the penalty that you commit and I commit, and he puts it on his son. You see? And he punishes his son for the crime that we commit. And therefore, he can make us not guilty and forgiven. It is the only way that God can continue to be just and at the same time be a justifier of sinners. That's the plan. That's the brilliance and the beauty and the wisdom of God and salvation. So that has to be the cross. So, so it may look like the Jewish leaders are in control. And it may look like Pilate has the last word on the matter. And it may look like this stirred up crowd is swaying things against Jesus. Right? Uh, but here's the thing. It is the Father who struck down the Son. And the Father and Son are in perfect and total agreement with this. Right? And, it, and the Son is in total control of every aspect going to the cross. And, and listen, the Father, the reason that He's striking down the shepherd is because He loves the sheep. The reason the Father is striking down the shepherd is because He loves the sheep. And You see, He would have to slaughter the sheep if the shepherd isn't slaughtered for them. He'd have to slaughter the sheep. But he slaughters the shepherd instead of the sheep and in place of the sheep. Thus, God is responsible for Jesus' death. He is responsible for the shedding of his blood. And Jesus was not an unwilling victim. It's not like Jesus got like, like swooped up into this thing. He wanted it. He came for it. For this purpose, he was born. This is how the Father will redeem fallen men by putting Jesus through the horror of the cross. He will make Jesus, who knew no sin, to literally become sin for us and then strike Him down for it. But it's only temporary. It's only temporary. Because Jesus says in verse 32, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. After I have been raised. So my death is not the end here. There will be a rising up, as I have told you in the past, and this darkness will pass, and the light is coming. So even though you will scatter because of me now, take heart, because as I have told you, I will rise again. 
I will rise from the dead on the third day. I won't stay dead. The grave cannot hold me. And this is a promise for them. And this is an encouragement for them. Because the one who said that he was the resurrection and the life promises to resurrect himself from the grave. And it's not a question with Jesus. It's not a question. There's no qualifiers here. There's no maybes. Right? Which is why he says, after I have risen, I will meet you in Galilee. I will meet you. And what the apostles don't get yet is that Jesus' death and resurrection means that their sins are paid for in full. Even their sins of pride and unbelief, which they're committing right then and there, and that very night, it's all paid for. And that God has been satisfied with that payment. And because of it, has forever justified them. So when, when they see Jesus again, the next time they see Jesus, guess what? They will see Him, and they will be... They will be Debt free from their sins. They will no longer owe God a, a sin debt. They will no longer owe Him that because now they will be justified forever in the courtroom of heaven. Right? So, so when they see Jesus again, Jesus' work will have completed their salvation for them. It is secured. When Jesus said it was finished, it was finished. Everything necessary for them now to be absolutely perfectly justified and right before God in the holy heaven was completed at the cross. But they don't understand that yet. And Jesus will gather together with them again, His scattered ones, as He goes before them to Galilee. And what He is saying is this, You will flat leave me, but I will not flat leave you. And the truth is, I can never flat leave you, because I unconditionally love you. Which is evidenced by my willingness to take on your sin debt and to die for you. Brothers and sisters, he loves us because He chooses to love us. And He chooses to love us because we were a love gift given to Him by the Father. And our weaknesses and our frailties and our sin, they do not hinder or diminish His love for us by even one iota. He doesn't get mad at us. He doesn't get frustrated with us. He doesn't hold against us the things we do because we are stupid and dumb sheep at times, and we are. Even though we fear man at times, and even though we cower at times. Not that we should ever fear man, not that we should ever cower. We should never do any of those things. We should not. They're not acceptable, and we shouldn't do them. But He doesn't disown us because of them. Nor does He love us less because of them. He doesn't. He loves us because He chooses to love us and not based on our performance. Right? And notice, He doesn't scold or berate the apostles for what they will do. Right? When I was, a, when I was growing up, listen, my mother loved me very much. I'm very convinced of that. But when I did something that was wrong, or when I got out of line, I got the end of the broom. I got the hard heel of a slipper. She loved me, but she gave it to me. But Jesus is gentle and patient with His disciples. And He is with us. And He knows that we are weak. And He knows that we have powerful enemies in our own flesh and, and, and in the devil and the demons. He knows that. But we are still His beloved and He is still ours. Amen? So all will stumble. Secondly, Peter will never stumble. Verse 33. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never stumble. I will never be made to stumble. Right? Jesus says, You're all going to do it. You're all going to abandon me. Peter says, I'll never do that. No way, no how will I ever do that. I love you too much, Jesus. I've committed my life to you. I have forsaken everything for you. Wasn't, wasn't it me who said that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? Right? Did I not say that you have the words of eternal life? So how could it be that I would forsake you? Hey, even if every other apostle forsakes you, I would never do that. I would never be made to stumble because of you. And what he is actually saying is, he is saying is this, it is possible for all these other guys to do this, but not me. And that's because he thinks he's better than the other guys. He thinks he's better than the other apostles. In his mind, he's more loyal to Jesus. 
He's more dedicated to Jesus than the other 11. He's a better Christian. He's a better Christian than the other guys. Now, this is not new. This is not a new thing that somebody should think that. Because even today, even today, there are some believers who think they are stronger, more spiritual, more godly than other believers. They think they're better than other believers because they don't allow a certain thing into their lives. Or they don't do this thing or do that thing. They're better because they read their Bibles more. Right? They read Christian books more. They're more dedicated, more committed, more devoted, more holy. Hey, they don't watch TV. They don't go to movies. They don't entertain themselves. Right? They don't do things like other people do. And they would never fall into this sin or into that sin. Or they would, would never be as worldly as this person or that person. And maybe they don't even want to talk to that person because they're above that person. This Christian is above that Christian because this Christian doesn't live like that Christian and so I don't want to talk to that Christian. It's an occasional hello. But they don't have time for them. They don't serve them. They don't love them the way they ought to love them because they think they're better than them. You know what that's called? You know what that's called when you think you're better than another Christian? Spiritual problem. And that's sin. That's sin. You know why I know it? Because I've been guilty of it many times. I've been guilty of it many times. And it's ugly. What should make us humble and should make us unbelievably Christ-like makes us self-centered because we know more. We're more committed. We do more. If you think you're closer to God or stronger to Him and you would never fall into what other people fall into or live the way other people live, that's pride. And guess what? You are set up for a fall. You're set up for a fall if that's the case. And watch out. Watch out because you can't really see how weak you really are. And what you're doing is relying on your own strength and performance and you are leaning on your own understanding. And like Peter, you don't know the capabilities of your own heart, which is deceitful and desperately wicked, we are told. And like Peter, you think you can handle it. You think you're past certain sins, that you have mastered them. You have mastered things. I'll never do that again. I'll never do this thing again. I'll never go there again. I will never allow this thing into my life. Well, when you think that, when you think I have conquered something, you are really ready to fall from that thing. You are set up for the fall. Just a few hours before this, in this night, right? Jesus says, one of you guys are going to betray me. And Peter, with the other eleven, and Judas says it just as a matter of not looking bad in front of the other guys, but Peter with the other ten apostles who really believe, they rightly say, and Peter says, Lord, is it I? Would I do this thing? Would I do this thing? And so Peter at that point doesn't trust his own heart, and, and that's good. But now an hour or so later, he says, listen, even if these other guys bail on you, Jesus, I will never bail on you. And here we see the great depravity of our hearts. And by the way, lest you think Peter is the only one who thinks this way, the end of verse 35 tells us they all think this way because they all say, yeah, we would never do that either. None of them believed it was possible for them to abandon Jesus. Well, Peter says emphatically, I'll never do this. I'll never stumble because of you. Never, 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 never. I just won't do it. Never. And I have learned in my life never to say never because I am usually eating those words when I say them. I remember back in 1995, not a spiritual thing, but it's a never story. Back in 1995, my wife's uncle, who at the time was 80, uh, he lived in a home, in the basement of a home for like 30 years or so, and the guy who owned the home was selling the home and he had to get out. Well, first of all, he's an 80-year-old guy. He has like no money, uh, and, 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 and nobody, we can't find a place for him. And my wife feels very obligated to help, and her siblings didn't live around us, and so... My wife and her uncle didn't really have a great relationship, although she was kind to him and, and certainly was. Uh, and, and I said, seeing the stress here mounting, and I said, I said, take my word on it. Read my lips. He will never live in this house. 
I wound up building an apartment in my basement. He lived there for eight years. He lived with us for eight years. Only a fool says never. And I qualify. Right? And so, spiritually speaking, we should never say never when it comes to living the Christian life because sin is way stronger than we give it credit for. And, and Satan is way stronger than we give him credit for. And we are way weaker than we give ourselves credit for. And if we operate in our own strength, we will fall. Right? And, and if we think we can handle sin or temptation on our own, we will succumb to it. We will succumb to it. And if we think we can navigate life without abiding in Christ and anchoring on Him for everything, we're going to go down. Right? It, it's only when we know that we are weak and, and can be easily swayed that we become strong in Christ. And this, of course, mandates humility, right? without which no one will see the kingdom of heaven. Listen, the apostles have a real problem with pride. And we see from chapter 16 on, they're jockeying for the best seat in the kingdom. They want the best seat in the kingdom. They want to they have the best throne next to Jesus. Who's going to be the greatest? I want to keep that. They keep asking Jesus. And Jesus keeps reiterating and telling them that in order to wait, the way to go up in the kingdom is you've got to go down. It's not like the world, right? It's not like the world. And he says in Matthew 18, he puts a, again, they're battling, and he puts a kid in the midst of them. And he says this in Matthew 18, 3 and 4, unless you are converted, that's the first part, and become as little children, there's humility, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it's all about being humble. We can't see ourselves as anything. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who see themselves as bankrupt before God spiritually in every other way and trust Him for everything. If you see yourself as something, then quite honestly, you're not ready. Because you and I are nothing and Christ is everything. And yet that is the absolute right position. And by the way, when it comes to coming to salvation, there's this, there's this very erroneous teaching today that you can somehow just accept Jesus when you want to accept Him. I accept Him. Well, it doesn't work like that. Jesus said you've got to strive, agonize to enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? You, you need to see your sin as, as something so miserable, so disgusting, and, and so, such a burden that you want nothing more than to, to have your sins forgiven. And that means you've got to be empty. Nobody comes to Jesus with any of themselves in themselves. You've got to be empty. You've got to see yourselves as absolutely undeserving, unwilling, and unqualified. And if you see yourself that way, you're looking good. Because that's how God wants you to be. And now, Christ will receive you. He'll take you empty, empty of everything but, but trusting in Him. The problem is, is we want to bring our sin with us. I want Jesus, but I want to keep this, and I want to keep thinking that, and I want to keep doing that. Now I want Jesus. I've got to get rid of everything and come to Him. And He'll give me everything that I need. Well, just hours before this, hours before this, Jesus washes the apostles' feet at the Last Supper, which was the job of a slave. And He tells them this. And it's, a, it's an illustration of humility. He says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, only a slave would do that. It's a really dirty job. Right? Right? you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, he's not talking, you know, we all physically walk around with washcloths all day in basins. What he's saying is, go low. Go low. Esteem others better than yourself. Right? Care about your brethren. Love them. Put their desire above your desire. That's what he's saying. If Jesus, God in the flesh, right, put our desires above his desires by going to the cross, what desire could you have that I would not be willing to put up on my desire? You know what I'm saying? That's what he's saying. And it means, again, to be humble. Go low. Think, don't think well of yourself. Right? But if you think you're better or more important than others, watch out because pride comes before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. In other words, you exalt yourself, at some point you're going to go down. Now, Luke tells us something about this, this encounter with Peter and Jesus that Matthew and Mark and John leave out. In, in, in Luke 22, verses 31 to 32, Jesus says to Peter this. He says, Simon, Simon, indeed, 
Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Right? You see, Peter, see, before, before Peter says, I would die for you. I would die with you, Jesus. Rather than forsake you, I would die for you. And Jesus said, well, let me, let me show you something, Peter. Let me show you the spiritual battle that's going on behind the scenes that you can't see. Right? And, and, and he says, listen, Peter, Satan is gunning for you. Satan is gunning for you. He wants to toss you around like sifted wheat. And that just means, in those days, after they would, they, would, they would harvest the wheat, they would throw it in the air, and the wind would blow away the chaff, and the wheat would come down because it was heavier, and that's how they would separate the good stuff from the bad stuff. Basically saying, he wants to create havoc in your life. He knows you are weak, Peter. He knows you're a proud man. He knows you're a boaster. He knows that you're self-reliant. And he knows that you're an unofficial leader even among the other apostles. And, and, and he knows that you have, have a weak faith. And he knows that. And, 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 and that you're going to have the worst night of your life tonight. He knows that too. And then, then Jesus leaves him with this great hope though. And he says, but I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. So that won't be a total devastation to you. I have prayed for you so this will not totally, you know, annihilate you in any way. And when you've returned to me, right, i.e. when you've repented of your sins, then I want you to strengthen your brothers, the other apostles, meaning tell them not to trust in themselves either. Tell them to trust in me. Well, did Peter learn that lesson? You bet he did. Right? Years later, he writes in 1 Peter 5, verses 5 to 7, and this is the same guy that swore up and down he would, never, he would never leave Jesus, right? But he did. He writes, All of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Why? For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him. Why? For he cares for you. Did he learn? You bet he learned. We need to learn, right? We need to learn it. Listen, it is the height of pride to think that we're better than someone else. Or that we can't fall in an area. Or to think that we're safe from the things that other people aren't safe from. Matthew Henry said this. He said, those are often least safe that are most secure. Those are often least safe that are most secure. When you think... Oh, things are going good. I got all this under control. You're set up. So we need to be constantly beseeching God to make us strong in the Lord and in the power of His might and not in ourselves. Amen? All will stumble. Peter will never stumble. Thirdly, how Peter will stumble? Verses 34 and 35. Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And so said all the disciples. Well, Peter says, I'll never be made to stumble. Jesus says, yes, you will. And let me tell you exactly how you will do that. And, and Peter thinks, like many of us think, he thinks he knows himself better than anybody knows him. But he's wrong. And so are we if we think that, because Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. He does. And notice here that Jesus doesn't scold Peter. He doesn't berate him for his sinful, prideful comments. He doesn't call him a fool doesn't say you are a selfish, ignorant man. No. Instead, he says, Peter, take my word on this. You will not only stumble because of me, but you will also deny me. Right? In fact, Peter, before the rooster crows twice this night, and Mark tells us from, from, from the Roman clock, we're talking like by 3 a.m. in the morning, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to die you even know me. And, and, and so Jesus doesn't hammer him, doesn't shred him to pieces. He's actually very gentle with him. Even though Peter will disown him uh, and separate from him, Jesus deals very gently with him. And, and he will not disown Peter and he will not separate from Peter. Right? And, and, and listen, the reason Jesus is going to the cross is so that he could win and own Peter forever. That's why he's going. He's going for that reason. So Peter's denials cannot keep Jesus from loving him with all of his heart. And the same is true for every born-again believer. The same is true. You've got to know that. Right? If God has saved you, 
His love for you so, so, is so unbelievably overwhelming, you can't even comprehend it. So Peter's denials cannot keep, keep Jesus from loving him. Well, Peter is so full of himself, though, at this point, that when Jesus tells him exactly what he will do and how he will do it, Peter says this, I will not. Absolutely not. No way. You are wrong on this one, Jesus. Even though Jesus is his Lord, he believes he's his Lord, and even though everything he has ever said to, to Peter has never been wrong, and Jesus has never been wrong on anything about anything that's ever going to happen, he knows what Satan will do. He knows how the Scriptures will be fulfilled. He knows that Judas is betraying him. Right? He knows the desires of the Jewish leaders. He knows that the crowd, crowds will ask for Barabbas. Yet, Peter contradicts Jesus to his face. You say I will offend you. You say I will scatter. And, and, and now you say that I will even deny you three times. Well, let me tell you something, Jesus. None of these things will ever happen to me. None of these things will ever happen because I know me better than you know me. Listen. When we hear the word of God and we say, this doesn't apply to me. Or, I don't need to worry about that. We are, in essence, doing what Peter did, and we are contradicting Jesus. We are, in essence, doing what Peter did, and we are contradicting Jesus. So when we are told to flee youthful lusts, and we think we can handle it. I don't need to do that, man. I can handle it. You're contradicting Jesus. When we are told to pluck out an eyeball or cut off a hand, figuratively speaking, if it causes us to sin, and we say, I don't need to do that, man. I can handle it. I'm okay. We are contradicting Jesus. When we are told to train up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and to discipline them with the rod, and we say, that's not the way I do it. I don't want to do it that way. We have other ways. We're contradicting Jesus. When we are told to make no provision for the flesh, and yet we go to certain places and hang out with certain people and call upon the old boyfriends or old girlfriends just to say hello, we are contradicting Jesus. We are contradicting Jesus. When we think, when we think that we can be immersed in the world, immersed in its systems, immersed in its ways, and grow and be godly? We are contradicting Jesus. When we stand by the water, eventually our toes will go in the water. Eventually, we'll be up to our knees. And before you know it, we're swimming in it. Before you know it, we're swimming in it. You see, our problem is we don't know the depths of our own hearts. We really don't. And we really don't know what we're capable of. And yet, how easy is it for us to trust in those hearts, in our feelings, and in our human wisdom? Right? When the Word of God clearly tells us, beware of this, don't do that, engage in this, seek that. And yet we say, I I'm good. I, I can handle it. We're contradicting Jesus. See, what we're doing is we're denying Him, really. And we're denying that His Word is sufficient for us to live a holy life. We deny that He knows what's best for us. And sadly, what we're doing is denying the very Lord of Lords in our lives. Well, Peter thinks he has a greater loyalty to the Lord than he actually has. And at the same time, he's going to betray Him. And the same is true for you and I at times as well. Most of us would say with Peter, I would die for Jesus. I would die for Jesus. Uh, and... and and, and, and most of us would say that, that we would die for Jesus. And, 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 and the question is, would we really, though? Listen, I have said so many times, and I'm guilty of it, and I hope I would really do it. I would I say, I would fall on a sword for that doctrine. You know? And you know what I'm saying? I would die for it. Falling on a sword means I would just go there and kill myself for that thing. I say I will fall on the sword for the deity of Christ. I will fall on the sword for the doctrines of grace, that God is sovereign in everything. And there are a lot of doctrines that I would fall on a sword for. But the question is, would I really fall on it? Someone put the sword out there and said, here you go. Do you believe in this? Well, would I really do it? I hope I would do it. I really do hope I would do it. I really hope that I would die to him. 
But I know that I'm a weak person. And I know at times my faith is weak. And I know at times my heart is weak. Right? Which is why you and I desperately need to be strong, not in ourselves, but in the might and the power of the Lord. That His strength would be made perfect in our weaknesses. Well, in closing, I'd like to leave you with a comparison between Jesus and His apostles to remind you and I of how we are and how blessed He is. Right? The apostles, they love Jesus. And they have faith in Jesus, as weak as it is, but they do. Uh, but they also are proud men and cocky and self-assured and soon to defect from Jesus. But our Lord looks past their sin and He looks past all of their weaknesses and He looks past their inconsistencies and He knows exactly what they will do. And instead of condemning them, He warns them. Listen, they are sinning like crazy. But He knows. He knows that He is taking all of that sin up with Him on the cross. He knows where it's going. Right? Where He knows their debt will be paid for in full. And, and this weak, and this frail, and this proud bunch of men will soon be declared not guilty in the courtroom of heaven before God. They'll be declared not guilty. So although Jesus knows men in their worst condition, and He does, He still loves them. And although He knows the immensity of our human weaknesses and our wanderings and our ungratefulness, He still loves us. And He will never turn from us. And He'll never become angry or bitter with us. You see, He has nothing but sympathy and compassion for His people who in their weakness are driven to sin. And He showers His people with grace and mercy precisely because they are His people. He doesn't shower you with grace and mercy because you figured something out. Or because you came. But because you're His people. Because He loves His people. And it's these truths that we've got to hold on to. So when we sin, and we still sin, and when we cower, or when we take worldly ways, cry out, Lord, help me. And remember that His love doesn't diminish because of my weaknesses. Now, if you don't know this amazing love in Christ today, if your heart has never been changed by Him, then, then in some way... Jesus and His Word, i.e. His Gospel, is an offense to you. But it is that very Gospel which holds out hope to you today. Because the Gospel says this. The Gospel says that Jesus died for sinners and then resurrected from the dead. And it says that anyone who comes to Jesus and turns from their sins and repents and trusts in Jesus will be saved. And that anyone means anyone, even you. Even you can be forgiven of all your sins. And even you can be given a pure and holy standing before God. And even you can have life and have life more abundantly and live this life with joy. But you must truly seek Jesus, the one who was struck down by the Father to save sinners like you. Right? And that's how much Jesus loves sinners like you. But you must surrender and come. Amen? Let's pray. Father in God, we... Lord, thank you for revealing to us through the Apostle Peter and the other Apostles just the frailty and weaknesses of our own hearts, our propensity to sin and to go the way of the world. And yet, Lord, your great mercy and kindness, uh, Lord, your Lord, unstoppable love and amazing love, Lord, for your people. Lord, I pray that you would encourage the saints today uh, to walk the walk and to uh, be, be settled in their own hearts and minds. Uh, Lord, I see your your goodness toward them. And Lord, for those who don't know you, pray that you might have mercy, eternal mercy on their souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.